it hard being an American living in Canada? It, well, it's, it's easy living in Canada. And I consider myself a Canadian now. I'm a legal permanent resident, right. not yet a citizen, but I, I love it here. And uh, it's, it's hard being an American wherever you are now with what's going on. It's just uh, such a bloody disgrace and a disaster. How long have you lived in Canada? I lived in Canada since uh, 2004. It's a while. Yeah. Can I ask how you came to that decision to come to Canada? I, I met a Canadian, um, a gal born in Toronto and raised in London, Ontario. Her name is Annie. Mm -hmm. And I, I came up to visit her for a cup of tea at Murchie's. And I, I got off the ferry and looked around and I said, how long has this been going on? <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea it was so beautiful. And I thought my career was over when I got here because uh, I, I, it, I couldn't imagine to be in the audience for the stuff I play in Canada. Right. You know, I thought in Canada, you're all listening to Gordon Lightfoot and, <laughs> uh, and Anne Murray. And, uh, but it turned out that there was uh, an audience for it and a, and a wonderful blues community. That's for sure. I, I didn't know the depth and breadth of it. I didn't know that I could go anywhere in Canada. If I needed to pick up a band quickly, I could get a-list masters. Mm -hmm. I landed in Calgary. I need a guitar player. They said, "Do you want Tim Williams or Amos Garrett?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and I was coming to Toronto, and there's the downchild rhythm section to play mm -hmm. with. And, and I went to Quebec last year, and there was Stephen Barry to play bass with me. You know, right? So, but when you decide, when you land, and you thought, "Okay, I think I'm going to stay here." And you really did think that your musical career would be over? I I, I thought if I stay here, it's over. You know, maybe I can go back to the States two or three times a year and play a gig. Right, right. And, uh, and I was careful not to play in Canada until it was legally appropriate to do so, because I didn't want to start my relationship with a new country by breaking its laws. Because if you lived in Portland, I don't know how much exposure you would have to Canada. I guess very little. We, I had been to Canada once or twice. So we'd come up to Vancouver to play at the Yale when it was right. a blues club. So that's, um, that's really all I knew. Wow, and, and I, you know, I had my favorite Canadian artists. I always loved Leonard Cohen and Oscar Peterson. <laughs> yes, uh, but I wasn't even aware of the number of American blues musicians who had moved to Canada and stayed, mm -hmm. uh, like Lonnie Johnson, who invented blues guitar. Yeah, and he lived right here in Toronto. Yeah, you know, and uh, Van Pianoman Walls, my hero and idol, who lived in Montreal, and they made a very great documentary about him. Uh, Called the Spirit of Rhythm and Blues, uh -huh. uh, and I got to I got to see that because when when I first came to Toronto and attended the Maple Blues Awards, they they I won an award. I wasn't expected to. I was shocked, and so I go up and they they give me the Piano Player of the Year award, and I went back to the hotel and and I'm thinking, well, what is this? What does it mean? Uh, and finally, I thought, who else has won this? They didn't have any Wi-Fi in my room, so I had to go, had to go down to the lobby <laughs> with my old iPad and uh, get online, and, uh, and I looked it up, and, and there was the names of the people who'd won it in previous years. And I, I knew who some of them were. I knew who Kenny, Kenny Blues Boss Wayne mm -hmm. was, because he was already a friend, and Michael Fonferra I knew about. But I, well, I went all the way back to the beginning, and the first winner of it was Van Piano Man Walls. And, uh, I sort of lost it. I'm, I sat in the lobby weeping. That, <laughs> well, that's I, I, great. I've, you know, he was my hero when I was a teenager. I, I learned to play his stuff from Big Joe Turner Records. Now they've given me the same award he got. 
Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm talking to David Vest mm-hmm. from out west, from mm-hmm. Vancouver Island now, yeah. mm-hmm. and he's here for the Maple Blues Awards and kind enough to sit down and talk to me about his life and his music. Well, uh, thanks for asking. It's, it's great to talk with you. Well, tell me about the beginning. Tell me about growing up in Huntsville, Alabama. Well, I, you, you know, uh, my mother's family was from Huntsville. My father's family from, was from out in the country, and uh, a long line of sharecroppers. You, oh. you know, my dad grew up uh, in a sharecropping family, everybody living in a one-room shack and picking cotton and, and having the big boss man decide how much you picked because maybe you didn't know math so well, you know. Right. Uh, and, and my dad only got to go to the sixth grade. Uh, no one in my family had ever been to college of any kind. My mother was the only person in any branch of the family that ever even finished high school. Um, and uh, I had a, had a grandmother who was a great singer. And she sang at church and she bought me my first piano. She paid, she paid $50 for it. So yeah. tell me about that. Is, did the piano come first or did your love of piano you know, I was already playing. Oh, you were? Okay. But and the, the truth is, and it's not just because I'm getting older now, but I don't ever remember not playing. Well, when you started six. Yeah, I, yeah, I was always, you know, banging around on it at church. or. Uh, and would you, what would you have been playing at six? Do, would you remember that? or? Well, I was, uh, no, I don't remember the first things I was playing. Uh, I... I I think the first song I learned must have been a W.C. Handy song because that's a name that was spoke, spoken with great reverence in, in mm-hmm. my home. Uh, uh, we didn't have much to be proud of from, from Alabama, we thought. You know, we're, we're poor people and we're backward and we've been wrong about everything. <laughs> so, but did you actually think that? At, at, I, I just, all I knew was that, uh, you know, when my mother talked about W.C. Handy, there was a tone of respect in her voice. And, and the, that she would like it if I would learn this stuff, you know. Wow. And he was from Alabama, and he was a great composer. I think the first gig I ever played for money in 1957. Like you were like 14 or something. Yeah, 13 or 14. It, uh, uh, I turned 14 in November of that year. But, um, so it must have been 13. But I, I'm sure the St. Louis Blues was, was what I played. And what yeah. did you play? Was it? Was it a coffee house? Was it a church? Or no, it was a, it was a, an upright piano on an old flatbed truck in the middle of a field in a park, a little festival. Wow. Uh, Do you so, remember this gig? Yeah, yeah, I, I remember just banging away at it and, and a, a lot of gigs like that. Uh, um, in, the, in those days, uh, you know, I was too young to get into clubs. Right. They, were, they were this mysterious things that only evil people went to. I'd heard about in church, you know. But, but how do, do you recall how you might have felt playing on this flatbed truck? I recall how I felt getting paid. <laughs> That's why I remember it, because I'd played other things before, but mm-hmm. this was the first one they gave me some money for. Not much money, but a money little bit. And, yeah. and, and I thought, this is, this is not too bad. I get money for this. How did you actually learn to play the piano? Your grandmother or...? Uh, you know, my grandmother would sing, and, and she would bring me records from the 5 and 10 store she worked at. You know, when they went past their cell date, they'd punch a hole in them and let her take them home. <laughs> right. So I heard all kinds of music growing up. 
And uh, I heard a lot of boogie-woogie players because those came from Alabama. And we, you know, uh, Clarence Pinetop Smith from South Alabama. Uh, but this I, is all learning by ear. Yeah, yeah. Was, did that come easy to you? It did. It did. Uh, and and uh, I remember once getting at some music store a little laminated sheet that showed what the chords are. You, 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 this is C, and fingers are here, you know. And you could turn it over, and there's some scales or something. So I remember looking at that and being puzzled by it. But <laughs> <laughs> so you never had a formal training? No, no. Wow. I had formal training in the sense that some some real blues masters would sit down with me and show me how to do stuff and, and say, why don't you try it this way? It's a lot easier, you know. And, uh, and I had those guys. Uh, when I lived in Birmingham uh, after high school, uh, I lived uh, not very far from Tuxedo Junction, the real place. Mm. And there'd be jam sessions out there sometimes. And uh, I don't know if it was in the same building or not. It's memory, you know. I used to think this building was the real Tuxedo Junction, or that one was. But uh, but it was in Inslee, right down the streetcar line. The junction was where the streetcars met. Right. And so I would play, by that time I was playing in clubs. Uh, uh, age? Yeah, yeah, it was. 16, uh, 17? 17, 18. Uh, actually, the Tuxedo Junction jam sessions were a little bit later. It was about maybe 19 or 20, because I'd been off to Florida with a group. Uh, and at this point, are you thinking that this is your career? This is the path you're going to go? Or? No, no, no. I'm thinking this is what I do to have fun. Uh, this is where real life is, but I have to go to college and you know b become a professor and get a, advanced degrees or something, so I won't be... a physical laborer like my dad right you know can we just go back to that because yeah. there is the image of the sharecroppers and the the people um working the crops mm -hmm. and it is an image that's associated directly with the blues yes and and mainly with black people mm -hmm. your dad was not black no can you talk about that relationship or how you viewed i i i viewed it as you you know Political leaders used to come into the South and try to convince us that the situation of the poor black sharecropper and the poor white are the same. Right. And they should see that they have this cause in common, you know, and not, not be opposed to each other, but right. we're in this together. And all, all we knew was it was just poverty, you know. It right. was, uh, and did you see a color difference from your perspective? I, I wasn't aware of it much until I uh, got to be 12 or 13, and I would walk around downtown Huntsville, just roamed freely from infancy, uh, and I suddenly noticed that I never see any black people my own age. Where are they? You know, I, I, I know there are a lot of black people live in this town. They lived right across the railroad tracks from us. I used to be their paper boy. Right. You know, I would go down into Shantytown and deliver papers, and that's where I heard a lot of good blues music coming through the screen doors. And that's where I saw the, 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 the ice wagons drawn by mules. Right. And when Bo Diddley sang, uh, uh, Night was dark, sky was blue, down the alley the ice wagon flew. It hit a bump. Somebody screamed. You should have heard just what I seen. <laughs> I knew what he was talking about. Right. And... and, and 
And I learned a lot of things about language and, and the way people express themselves. When I had to go to collect for the papers, I'd knock on the door and a voice from back inside the shack might say, what are you doing coming around here banging on the door on my day off? Get away, come back next week. I knew what that meant. That meant I don't have the money to pay you today. Mm-hmm. Don't make me come to the front door and admit to a white child that I don't have the money to pay for my newspaper. Right. But instead it was about me, me being a pest. And, right. and, I, and I'd say, you know, yes sir, and come back later. That's just the way things were expressed. And, and I heard uh, a lot of great music coming through those doors. But you didn't really have access to, other than that, you didn't have access to a lot of black people. No, 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 not at that point. Had the black radio from in Huntsville that, that played the, the hard gospel stuff, the great, the great stuff. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't know people. They, they were the mysterious other to me uh-huh. because... Uh, it was, you know, this was in the time of segregation. Mm-hmm. And you had to grow up and, you know, we all wake up at different speeds and say, wait a minute, look, look where I am. What's going on here? Why is this happening? Right. Uh, and, you know, I, you, yeah, I slowly became aware that most of the artists that I was listening to were black. And... Uh, all these rock and roll stars come through town. I mean, I saw Carl Perkins in Huntsville, Alabama in 1957. Right. Uh, you opened up for Roy Orbison. Yeah, that was the 60, 62 New Year's Day. And uh, Orbison was supposed to be on that show with Perkins, but his wife was having a baby and he didn't show up. So, <laughs> uh, What was it like opening up for Roy Orbison? Well, it was just, just uh, meeting him was, was incredible. It was like meeting the Buddha for me. I mean, I've heard other people say this too. Katie Lang said it. He said it was like standing beside the Buddha and singing. <laughs> he was so centered. Right. And we all were in the same dressing room. And uh, the promoter had failed to list the, on the posters the fact that there was a matinee. There was two shows, afternoon and evening. The evening show sold out the minute they put the posters up, but almost nobody knew there was an afternoon show. <laughs> wow. We got there, and there's, you know, maybe a, a generous count, maybe 130 people in this big coliseum, seats 5,000. And the promoter came backstage and said, you know, there's nobody out there. Everybody go out, let's sing one or two songs, wave bye-bye, and then we'll go have a nice dinner. And everyone said, yeah, great. And Orbison said, I can't do that. And the guy turns around and says, what do you mean you can't do that? He said, well, did they buy a ticket? And uh, they probably paid the same price for the ticket they would have paid if the building Mm -hmm. was full. And we can give them their money back, but I'm not going to take their money and not give them a show. Um, Did you learn anything from that? I I did. I said, this must be how you do it. And what I really learned was from watching him perform for an empty hall with hardly anybody. He he held nothing back. It, it wasn't a shortened show, or he wasn't protecting his voice. He was singing full out, and, and uh, that was a an empty hall with people in it who will never forget what they saw. Right. You know. You know. He. he you treat people with respect. You. You perform at your best, whatever the circumstances. So having witnessed something like that, 
I'm not sure if you found yourself in a situation where you're playing to less than a full hall. Yeah, yeah. Is it oh, yeah. easy to do that? Because I always wonder. I have seen some amazing shows with just a handful of people and just being blown away at what the person is doing. It is because it's not about me. It's about the music. And it's about connecting with people and uh, connecting with whoever's there. But I also hear that when when you have a big crowd and they're responding, then it, that the artist is... Yeah, that makes it easier. Yeah. It makes it easier. But you, you get responses from, from small audiences, too. You know, you get these nods of people hear what you're saying. Right. I have a song that... Uh, well, I did it... Yeah, I, I usually do it, but I'd certainly do it for a small audience. Uh, it's a tribute to my dad. It's called We're All Sharecroppers Now. And it's about looking at the current economic yeah. situation of the world where so many people are having to work two or three jobs. You know, the kids are still having to live at home because they can't afford to get their own place. Um, um, it, it, you know, and I say, you know, my father had to walk behind a mule and plow, but take a look around you. Aren't we all sharecroppers now? Mm-hmm. And that, that connects with people. I can see them. I can see that hitting home. Did you know that you were poor when you were growing up? I did, because we didn't have a television. Everyone else had a television. Uh, we had running water, but I didn't live in a house with hot running water till I was 15 or 16. Um, and I, I wonder um, how, and I don't know if you can answer this, but how growing up poor might have influenced the person that you became. Well, or, it, or if it drove you in a way that's different. You know, I've never thought about that. I'm sure that it did. Um, it's mixed in with that southern thing of, of appearances. Like it, it, it doesn't matter how poor we are if we don't look poor on the outside. It, right. it, yeah, it's sort of like it doesn't matter what's going on in your heart if you present a good front. Um, and but is it something you felt growing up that you were lacking? Or if that's what you knew, I don't know if you feel like you're missing something. I, I really didn't. Right. I really didn't because I had books and music. My mother was a big reader and always sending me to the library. Got me, and my grandmother would bring me records and sing to me and bought me a piano. And, and my dad would put that old heavy upright piano on the back of a pickup truck and take it to the That piano I played on that show, he took it there in a truck. And while I was being congratulated and paid my little bit of money, he put it back on the truck with the help of a friend and took it back home. He did that many times. Um, so you decided to go to university. Uh-huh. You're, not, you're just playing music as a hobby. Mm-hmm. What happened to you? Well, I to earn my living at the time, too. Right. Okay. I didn't have any, we didn't have any money. But this wasn't a career choice at that point. No. Uh, it was a way to earn a living and maybe be able to afford to, you know, to, to get into college. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I took a couple of courses at a, what today would be called a community college, an extension center of a university. And becoming what? Uh, well, I was just, I just took the, the required courses. I took English and a history course. And then um, I, one of my teachers uh, recommended me to Birmingham Southern College, which was a, a liberal arts college. And a, a, a thing that I would have never, have, you know, I, I wouldn't have even felt worthy to walk around their campus, you know. And but I went over there, and they gave me a little scholarship, and they gave this me. This is based a, on your playing. 
Yeah, no, just just based on my the the recommendation of this English teacher. Wow. She said this kid can write. Um, and so they gave me a little job uh, working on the school paper and editing the literary magazine, and they had some housing they put me in. Tell me about writing. Tell me about, did you have a love for writing? I always had a love for writing. Uh, I, I always, uh, you know, I think it was pretty early on that I recognized that the, the rhythm and the meter that the lines that W.C. Handy was writing is the same thing that Shakespeare was writing. I am a pentameter. Right. I hate to see that evening sun go down. Right. You know, it's the, it's the language that, I mean, in, in English, it's the rhythm of language that people use when they're under emotional stress. Uh, I am a tetrameter. Who do you think you are, the Pope? <laughs> uh, uh, or, or uh, you know, I'll swear here. You can bleep this if you want no, to. No, swearing's allowed. Suppose your, your, your dad comes home, has a couple of beer, and he gets upset, and he yells, God damn it, what in the hell is going on? You know, that's, that's, that could fit in King Lear. It's right. the same pattern, the same rhythm. So I, I began to see uh, these literary sparks in these blues lyrics. And also, in, uh, uh, one night I was supposed to take a... a a biology exam the next day, but uh, I went out to drink some beer with some guys and went to the apartment of this guy, and he had a Hank Williams record, and he played uh, The Silence of a Falling Star Lights Up a Purple Sky. And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that's not so bad. That's, that's got that zing in it, you know. That, uh, but was it more poetry? Like, it sounds like you were writing for the newspaper. Yeah, it was, it was, Poetry. Uh, I was trying to write short stories. Um, I was do writing book reviews. Uh, pretty soon, the the local newspaper, the Birmingham News, would give me books to review, uh, and and books about music, like uh, jazz masters of the twenties or something. I got that one to review, and uh, and a, a book by Martin Williams of the Smithsonian. I later met him and told him I reviewed his book. I gave you a good review. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what happened to the, to the college career? Well, I, uh, I, got, um, I graduated from Birmingham Southern. Um, I played some jazz concerts at the, at the college, and they were very supportive of it. And my uh, faculty advisor there um, made a phone call on my behalf without me knowing it uh, to Nashville, to Vanderbilt University. And he got me a full scholarship to go to graduate school at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Wow. Based on your playing? Yeah. No, based on my writing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he, he, he thought I should quit playing. You, you need to give this up. Right, right. If I'm going to get you the scholarship, you're going to go become a literary professor. You need to go fully into that. And are you thinking... That's a good option? Like, where does music versus... Well, I wasn't really thinking then because it was such a big opportunity beyond anything I'd ever dreamed of. He, right. also, he also said, I can get you into UCLA if you want to go there, but you'd have to study 18th century poetry because that's, that's where there's an opening. But did you have a major interest in this? I, I did. You know, I was interested in, in writing and, uh, at that time, literary criticism, uh, the good stuff. Uh, 
the stuff written by people who never write about anything they don't love. <laughs> right. You know, they don't just damage people and there's right. no need to ridicule a bad book. It'll sink of its own weight, you know, <laughs> by itself. Um, so I, you know, I, it was a matter, it was an ego thing. I can go up here and, and say I went to Vanderbilt, which to us, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of Vanderbilt as a kid and I thought only rich people ever went there and it was some academic nirvana or something. Mm -hmm. like, um, How did your parents feel? They, my dad thought it was a mistake. He thought you should learn to be a draftsman, you know, and you always work indoors. You wouldn't have to work outdoors like me. Right. And my grandfather thought uh, they're going to make you be a teacher and you don't realize this, but you have to start teaching in kindergarten. Then they let you teach first grade. <laughs> and so when I, when I, when I came out of Vanderbilt and got a job teaching in college, he thought, I, maybe I'm smart. You know, you jumped ahead of everybody else. Right. He didn't, we didn't know anything about how the system worked. Because uh, nobody had been there before. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. But when I got up to Vanderbilt, I found people uh, on the faculty that saying, so you're one of these people getting a free ride. Mm. You're one of these guys that doesn't belong here. Uh, wow. And then... Uh, the guy that was my biggest supporter on the faculty, he found out I was writing a novel. And he said, you know, I'm going to forget I know this if you make sure nobody else finds it out. Because if this university thinks you're writing fiction instead of studying the stuff we're paying you to study, right. we'll question your commitment. Tell me about the novel. Uh, I threw it away. Oh, I actually well, threw it away. It's a novel about a musician, uh, some touring musicians in the South, uh, and uh, I was so shattered by his advice. You know, this this will damage you. Uh, it's not a worthy thing to be doing. You're you're being ungrateful to even be spending wow. time with this. That I actually uh, I wrote it. I wrote four drafts of it, and then I destroyed it. And I think, you know, anyone's life has a series of times when you betrayed yourself, I think. And this is my biggest, that I uh, allowed somebody to talk me into to killing a thing that I gave, that I made. It's created. a tough one, though, because, yeah. you know, you're in a world that's very unknown to you. Yeah. And you're probably feeling like a stranger in a strange land and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and yeah. it's a great opportunity. And those yeah. people are telling you not to do this. Yeah. It would be hard to, I mean, one could maybe argue that you could have just put it aside and not throw it away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I, I could have done that. I had put it in a safe deposit box or something. I, I regret it every day. And then when I, when I got my Ph.D. in English and went off uh, to Virginia to teach, I taught for a, a few years there. I didn't play at all. Didn't touch the piano. So even at home. Wow. And and what what was the thinking? Like you just you were too busy, or you you lost your love of? I, I, this, this takes a full time commitment. You know, if I'm going to do this, right. if I'm going to uh, serve these students well, I've got to be focused on it. But then somebody convinced me to come over to another college and and, and do a piano show. And uh, it was at uh, was at Mary Baldwin College, I think, in in Virginia, up in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And um, they convinced you because they knew that you played. Yeah, okay. yeah. And then, so all this time you're not playing at all. You're not right. even missing it, or no, 
telling myself I'm not. Right. You know, I, I used that to get me to this place. And, right. Which is not a bad place to be. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty impressive that you got mm -hmm. there. But I wouldn't play this show. And with, the, with how much practice? Uh, I've worked a little at home, you right. know. But, um, you know, I, I thought I could do it without thinking about it, you know. They had a student in charge of hospitality who, who met me and took me to the green room and introduced me. And after the performance, uh, which was well received, she came back and uh, she said, uh, I don't know what you do for a living, but if it's not this, you're wasting your life. <laughs> wow. You're wasting your life. And uh, my, um, my initial reaction was anger. What do you know? You don't even know me. You know, how dare you speak to me this way, you know. What did you play that night? I played the blues. Okay. The boogie woogie. Yeah. And a little jazz, a little jazz stuff. And how did you feel before even hearing that? How did you feel your if, other I, It felt great. Went? It felt great. And people loved it. And they really, it connected. And, 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 and yet you were offended by that comment. Yeah, because uh, she doesn't even know me. And, well, what was really offensive about it is, you know, there's nothing more offensive when someone tells you the truth that you right. don't want to hear. Right. Um, uh, and then then I, I was sent to Europe as a Fulbright scholar, and I, I went to Romania, and I met a bunch of musicians there, and they said, why don't you play our national festival with us? And we played there, and the, the, the national record company said, why don't you do an album while you're here? <laughs> Uh, so how long were you in Romania? A year. Okay. Yeah, this was uh, 79 I went there. So I became the first American to ever record in Romania. <laughs> what was that experience of living in Romania for a year like? It was, uh, it was very strange and wonderful. You know, it was a place where the, the landscape, the, the, the architecture, the people's dress, they, they looked to me from... You know, down in Alabama, it looked like I was on another planet. Uh, the language was like a tape played backwards or something <laughs> at first until I got to know people. Right. And I, and I met individuals. And, uh, and I, I began to convince myself that I could read Romanian without having studied it. And I, I remember, this is very funny, I, I would see this sign on the doors of apartment buildings. And uh, I thought... In my mind, I thought that sign says off limits to Americans. Americans keep out. No, no foreigners allowed. And uh, I finally asked a, a gypsy musician named Johnny Radicano. I said, what does that sign say? He said, the sign says, please close the door behind you. <laughs> <laughs> a little different. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's... There's something wonderful about discovering that you've been radically and dramatically wrong <laughs> about even a small thing, you know. That, um, so did you play with these musicians, the local musicians? I did. I toured Romania with them. Uh, and, but not playing boogie-woogie blues? Yes, playing boogie-woogie. Okay. Uh, when I played the National Jazz Festival, uh, he said, you keep quiet. We're going to tell them that, that you're... You're, you're, you're a famous gospel performer because the communists love gospel because they associate it with the left-wing movement in the U.S. <laughs> so, you know, Romania was communist at the time. And so I came out, here, here's this big uh, gospel artist. And so I came out and I opened with a song called Heart Full of Rock and Roll. 
<laughs> and they clapped along like, like this this is gospel you know <laughs> how did you was it easy to play with these musicians really they they were first of all they were fantastic masters of uh, Johnny Rodicano was the greatest bass player I ever played with. He was a wonderful piano player, too. Okay. I, I took master classes from him. But did you play any of their music? No. Oh, okay. No, they didn't want to play. Uh, they, first of all, they could tell that I couldn't. <laughs> but everybody wanted to play American music. and They wanted to play the blues. They wanted to play jazz, rock and roll. And uh, when I made this album, everybody in the country wanted to be on it. They didn't know, it wasn't about me. They didn't know who I was. It just as an American here playing American music. Right. And so we had 52 musicians on that album. <laughs> was it live off the floor? Live, well, it was recorded uh, over a period of weeks. Uh, and the big problem was I was drinking a lot at the time. And sometimes I would show up at the studio so out of it that I, I, I couldn't even function. Two of the tracks uh, on on my album, Johnny Rodicano played the piano on because I couldn't sit at the piano and play. Okay, so not the pry, but where does the drinking come from? Well, the drinking comes, uh, that goes way back in the family too. And uh, uh, from, from an early age, uh, you know, I'd say early in high school. Wow. You know, I, I had friends who, who ran moonshine, and we would get in the car with a false seat in the back and go up to Tennessee and drop off moonshine. And even today, uh, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in 30 years, but uh, uh, even today, I, I wouldn't drink what they call the good whiskey. It's just That's just that stuff with artificial coloring to me. Right. <laughs> um. It sounds like there were periods where you didn't play at all. Mm -hmm. But were you getting better? Like, as a player, when you went to Romania, and I, I presume you played a little more than... I played a lot there. Okay. So and then from the time I... You know, for from a year or two before I went there, I was playing again. Uh, and then I was, um, you know, playing all the time in Romania. And when, and when I got back, I knew I was... You know, I had to get out of teaching and, and find a way to do it. But I was in the middle of Virginia, and everything interesting in Virginia is at the edges. <laughs> and I was in the middle, uh, and there was no place to play and no opportunities except an occasional concert at the college. Uh, so I got this job in Texas writing speeches for an old man that wanted to run for governor. Wow. I took a sabbatical and, and went down there, and I had to do very little for that job, I made more than I'd ever made teaching to do nothing, and so I just played. And writing came easy to you? Yeah, it came easy to me. Always did. Uh, oh, so whereabouts in Texas? Houston. Okay. In Houston. And that, that's where the, it turns out the real blues scene in Texas was. Everybody talks about Austin, yeah, and that's, yeah. that's wonderful, too. There's a lot of great players there. But in Houston, I met uh, Jimmy T99 Nelson, who he became like a second father to me. Right. Uh, Texas Johnny Brown, who wrote Two Steps from the Blues, asked me to be in his band. And um, I couldn't at the time because I was playing with Jimmy. Uh, you know, and uh, Grady Gaines, who's still alive, who who's played the sax solo on Little Richard's Keep a Knocking. I played with Grady Gaines in Houston, <laughs> you know. Grady Gaines and the Texas Upsetters. 
Did, did playing in these bands, these blues bands in Texas, did that come easy to you? Because up until this point, I know you played in some bands, yeah. but you don't really talk about a lot of bands that you yeah. played with. Well, I, I'd, I'd played with, you know, I'd played with the Big Joe Turner right, right, when right. I was about 20. And, um, and we had a lot of uh, people sitting in uh, with this band I was in, Jerry Woodard and the Esquires. We went down to Florida and did a six-month stay at the Southland Club in Pensacola and and Bill Black's combo came in. We played with them. Uh, Ace Cannon scolded me about my drinking. He said, you need drinking lessons. He took me out and gave me drinking lessons. And the, drink, the lesson was I had to pay for all of his booze. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> that, was, that was the lesson. And, and the Jimmy Dorsey band came in and sat in with us. I don't know where this comes in, but what made you stop drinking? Oh, that happened later. It happened... Uh, well, when I got to Houston, my first marriage ended, and I met my second wife, who at that time I thought, this is the love of my life. Uh, she'd been a ballet dancer. She'd been with the, the Ballet Russe of Monte Carlo and the National Ballet in Washington. She danced at the White House. Wow. And uh, she was running a dance school at that time, no longer working professionally. So I married her, and then a year later she died of breast cancer. Um, and I was just, uh, just shattered and destroyed by that. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, that interfered with the playing too, of course, going through all that. I, I didn't have any time for that then. Uh, but then I, I just sort of made a, I thought just, uh, I didn't have much will to live after losing her. And I, I just thought drinking myself to death looked like a good idea. But it turned out to be uh, less romantic than I had envisioned it. <laughs> and, uh, so I hit my bottom in, uh, in 1989. Um, and, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I had to find new reasons to live. Uh, and I, I think. You know, one of the things that I bring to the blues is, is this experience of having been just broken completely apart. Of, uh, you know, I, I could look back at that time and say, well, here's this teaching career that I threw away. Uh, here's all these other things I threw away. And here's this first marriage that failed. And here's the second marriage where she died. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't save her. Um, so I had to just sort of rebuild myself and, you know, um, start out just be willing to hang around another day and see if it gets any better, you know. So. But how do you go from I'm willing to drown my sorrows and die drinking to yeah. I'm going to try to rebuild myself? Well, um, I had a, you know, in hitting the bottom of my drinking, I had a, a kind of, a, I don't know if it was alcohol-induced psychosis or what, but it, but this kind of a, a breakdown. Right. Um, where, um, you know, all the, all the sorrow and feeling, anger and everything else that I was trying to drown out with the booze all came up right. at once. Um, and I... Uh, you know, I had some counseling at the time, and I had some friends around, 
and um, and suddenly I, I found that I had this attitude of, of looking at life, saying, "What are you going to threaten me with?" <laughs> you know, right, the worst right. the worst has already happened. You right. know? Um, and then I met Jimmy T. Ninety Nine Nelson, who never said or sang anything that didn't come straight from his heart, from the center. Who, when he when he stood up to sing, you were right in the center of the blues right away of the feeling. There was no show about it. Right. It and. Uh, and that's when I, I got something really important. Um, music ex expresses feeling. What are you expressing if you can't feel anything? You know, if you're feeling no pain, as they say, right. how is what you're playing the blues? And uh, I, I started valuing uh, playing from just however I was at the moment. What you see is what you get. Uh, there's no, it was, it was very scary at first to play without any ironic protection, you know, right. just, just to lay it down. But uh, Jimmy encouraged me to do that. When that happened, when you're playing that and realize that you're going to let you reveal your feelings through your playing, was that an easy thing to do? The first time I did it, the first gig I played sober, was with a jazz group called Straight No Chaser. And uh, and Jimmy Ford played in that band, alto sax. He played with Maynard Ferguson on those uh, Message from Birdland and Message from uh, Village Vanguard or wherever it was. Uh, um, so he, he, you know, he'd been up there and played with the big boys. How did you feel playing sober? I felt terrified first time. I played a solo that somebody in the crowd liked and they started clapping. And I, and, I, and I stopped playing and I just turned around to the drummer who was the leader and said, can you make them stop, please? He said, no, I'm not gonna tell them to stop clapping. I, I can't, you know. So I left that night thinking I, I'm never gonna be able to do this. So it, why did you want them to stop? I, it frightened me. It, it, uh, it was an, an alarming noise. I, I mean, I don't know. Because uh, uh, he had heard that before. Yeah, but I was, you know, now there was a raw connection. There wasn't yeah. any, any protection, any booze protection or drug protection or anything. It was just... So, and what made you decide that I'm going to play this gig sober? Well, because uh, if I was going to play again, it was going to have to be sober. And uh, I hadn't played at all for about six months. I didn't... Mm. I didn't dare go in anywhere alcohol was served. I felt steady enough by then to do it. Had you been playing on your own? Yeah, yeah. And what did that feel like? That, um, it felt new. It felt, I've, I've got a, that's when I learned a new respect for my hands. That all this time, my hands have known what they're doing. And all I ever had to do was get out of the way. But if they're trying to wrestle a drunk and play music at the same time, you know, they, they're not free to do what they can do. Right. You know. Uh, but did you ever question, did you ever lack confidence in your playing? Uh, always. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think that's I, normal, but I just wonder. 
Like it seems like every time you sat down and played, you you seemed to do well. I had a strange experience one day. I told this to my my family doctor, and he he made some alarmed <laughs> notes. I I went and sat down at the piano one day, and I couldn't remember how to play. And it wasn't just that I couldn't think of anything to play. How recent is this? Oh, this was twenty uh, five years ago, maybe. Okay. And. Uh, And it was like I couldn't remember how to play at all. I didn't know what these notes were or. And had you, sorry, this is where's the drinking at this point? Oh, drinking is over. It's drinking's in the past. Wow. Yeah. And 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 it was like two or three minutes. I sat at the piano, uh, terrified. You know. You know, it's like this could all be taken away at any time. You know. Mm-hmm. It's a gift, and then it returned, and it's always been there ever since. But, uh, and that's soon after that is, is when I had the meeting with myself where I said that you know this is my gift. This is what I'm supposed to be doing, like that girl said, mm-hmm. with my life, and I'm going to do it, and. I'm going to quit trying to make money at other things. I'm going to do this. I'll live at whatever level it brings in, if I'm in poverty or not, because like a lot of people that grew up in poverty have been desperate to escape it. But I, I'm, going to, I'm going to play music, and if I can't sell it, I'll give it away. But this is what I do. Wow. And uh, So it was just about playing? About playing and writing. Um, um, the day after I said that out loud to myself, this is what I do. I'm gonna, if I can't sell it, I'll give it away. I had a call from people wanting me to write something for free for a social service agency, do a brochure for them and find a printer who would do it for free. So I did that. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from Paul DeLay saying, you want to come play blues with me? So are you still in Houston at this point? No, I was in I was in Portland okay. this time. Can I ask you how you got yeah. to Portland? Yeah, yeah. I uh, at some point about '94, I I came out uh, for a personal vacation at a place called Brighton Bush. It's an old hot hippie hot springs resort up in the Cascades. Right. I went up there and stayed a week in the hot tubs and getting massages and walking in the old growth forest and. Uh, talking uh, with com- complete strangers. I was sitting in a hot tub one day with this couple, and th- this guy said he was from San Francisco, and uh, he'd made a lot of money in San Francisco, uh, but he was worrying about what he had to do to make it. And, uh, and I said, well, I, I made a lot of money in Houston, but the money I made cost me a lot. And that it was as I said it, I realized it was true, you know, because I'd, I'd made it turned out made pretty big bucks writing speeches for for people. Uh, did you enjoy that at all? I did at first. I liked the idea of it, right. you know. Uh, but and and I enjoyed, you know, helping somebody else who's maybe not very articulate say what they wanted to say. You know, to 
to write this the way this guy would have written it if he could write. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's an amazing gift to have. Yeah, it, it's write. a little bit like writing for the stage. You know, you're writing for characters. Right. Here's this guy who's head of a small independent oil company, and he's my character. And so what does he want to express? Right. Uh, without giving too much away, you know. Uh, um, so I, I enjoyed that aspect of it, but not like I enjoy writing songs. And did you, were you writing songs throughout? Throughout, all the time. I wrote my... F- I wrote, my first songs were all instrumentals, and, and I think uh, the first recording I did under my own name, it, it was never released. We did two sides of a single, still got it on tape. The songs were called Blackout and Rebellion. <laughs> and, and I think of that today, and I think of the thing my grandmother used to say. She'd say, just listen to yourself. <laughs> Why am I writing about blackouts at 15 years old? You know, but then uh, first one with words was, was was for Tammy Wynette, who was a friend of mine in Houston. We we were on a morning TV show together. Had to get up and drive up on the mountain to be on the, on the air at 6 a.m. every morning. And, and sorry, were you hosting this thing? No, I was uh, I was just the piano player on it. Oh, okay. And I you know, played a boogie woogie solo or something. Uh, and, and, and accompanied everything else. And, uh, and Wynette, her name was Wynette Bird at the time, showed up one day and because she needed the job, you know, he paid $35 a week right. to do six mornings a week, $35 for all of them. Right. And that was a lot of money to her. She was working as an unlicensed beautician's assistant, you know, in a beauty shop in Bessemer, raising two kids. So we, we would we'd go out for breakfast after the show. She didn't have a car. I'd drive her down the mountain. And uh, one day she asked me to, if I knew anybody uh, had a studio she could do a demo with, take it to Nashville. And I did. I knew, knew somebody. And then she said, well, I'll need some songs. And, you know, I liked her. She was a beautiful lady and a friend. And I said, I'll write you some songs. And then uh, as the week went on, we were going to do it on Saturday, I thought, oh, I told her I'd write some songs. <laughs> and this wouldn't be blues song. No, just, just any kind of song. <laughs> no, uh, we, we always just used to joke about how our, our kinds of music weren't the same. You know, right. She was into the co- hardcore country all the time. Did you know, I mean, had you heard her sing? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you knew that she had talent. I, oh, it was terrifying talent I mean it was bone chilling right. you know to see the effect on audiences and uh, but at that time she wouldn't connect with them she would sing with her eyes closed or without making any contact just like she didn't want to know what they were feeling right. but I I could never go that country music route because um, I don't like going when my friends aren't welcome hmm you know, in the, we'd argue about this. And if, he, if she were alive today and sitting here, I'd say, you know, the Grand Ole Opry has had three African-American performers in its history and never more than one at a time. You had DeFord Bailey, had Charlie Pride. Now they've got this guy that used to be with Hootie and the Blowfish. He's a member. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you, you know, uh, 
wouldn't you be embarrassed to be associated with that? Yeah. I mean, if, if, the, if what Mississippi John Hurt plays wasn't country music, what the hell is? <laughs> I have to ask, did you write the songs? I did. I wrote the songs. One of them got used in a, a BBC special on her. Uh, they came to my home and, and interviewed me, and I let them play one of them. And, uh, and I also gave a copy of it to a guy that was, uh, was writing a, a, a biography of her. Uh, and he, he has about 20 or 30 pages on our relationship in that session wow. in there. Did the session result in anything? No, she took it up to Nashville, and uh, and here's my Nashville story. Okay. Yeah. Well, she she went to Nashville. She took this demo tape around and herself around and her guitar. It was in the office of over 15 different famous record producers, the geniuses of the music industry in Nashville, all of whom said, "Sorry, can't use you." Hmm. Didn't see any commercial potential in Tammy Wynette. And, uh, and Billy Sherrill, who, who, the producer that did make her a star, uh, he only hired her to sing on a demo session, you know, because the singer he had hired got sick or something. And she came in and, and sang that song, Apartment Number no. 9. And he said, this is pretty great. And he put it out, and it was a hit. Right. And then later she, she wrote Stand By Your Man, which is still... Today, the biggest selling single in the history of country music. Wow. And, and this is, the people who are supposed to know what works in music had her in their office. And, and you know, this is not what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. you know? um, I never communicated with her after that because I thought everybody that ever met her will be running up there wanting a piece of it and I'm not gonna be one of those guys. <laughs> and I never put those recordings out because uh, you know, I, I didn't see her as somebody I wanted to make money off of. You know, mm -hmm. this was a friend. So we go back to where Paul DeLay gives you a call. Yeah. And Paul, Paul DeLay was an amazing harmonica player. Based yeah, out of amazing guy. Yeah. I had just made my first uh, album in Portland, an album called Way Down Here, and Paul had played on it because uh, it was recorded live. Uh, and I said, well, Paul, I, thanks for asking, but I'm, I'm, you know, I've got my own record out. I'll be, he said, you can sing all those songs in my show. You know, I, I needed a co-front man, really, is what I need because of my health. Um, so you, you can probably sell more CDs singing with me because we'll have bigger crowds. And I said, all right, you know. So we did that, and uh, I was with him for about five years. Uh, amazing Amazing singer and songwriter as well as harmonica player. Mm -hmm. I don't know why more people don't cover his songs. Did you tour across the states or was he it mainly did. in the West Coast? Mainly the West Coast because, you know, just the expenses of it. But he, you know, we played uh, the, well, it's King Biscuit Festival again now, but they were calling it something else then in right. Helena, Arkansas. We went there and we went up to Alaska. And he, he went over to uh, Norway and played. This was before I was with him. Uh, and he went to Chicago and made an album, and he came up and played in Toronto once. Right. Yeah. Carlos Del Junco can tell you about that. He was at that show, wow. and he was so blown away, he was afraid to even talk to Paul. <laughs> and I said, man, Paul would have loved you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, he would have loved you. He, he had all the time in the world for other harmonica players, except riding in the van, he couldn't stand to listen to them. 
we be playing some jazz, some blues station, or somebody bring a CD, and he said, "I got it out of tune. Turn that off. I can't hear that. Got no tone at all." <laughs> because he met that guy, to be nice to him. <laughs> so, what was it like to be in that band and touring around for five years? What was it, that experience like it, for you? It was great because it was a great band. We, uh, we had Peter Diamond on guitar and Dave Call on bass, Jeff Minnick on drums, and uh, it's. You know, it's, um, and, and Bubba, we call him Paul out there. You, you know, I'd never heard a sound in my life like that harmonica. Mm -hmm. uh, and people say today, you know, you have a blues band, why don't you use a harmonica player? And I say, you, you find me one like the one I had. Uh, but really, I, I, I just get emotional thinking of, playing with another harmonica player. Right. You know, I'd start missing Paul. Um, so we did this, we did this album together called The Last of the Best. Uh, we recorded it live at different venues uh, before Paul passed away. And he didn't want to put it out. And um, we said, well, you know, if you're going to finance another recording because, the, you know, the label has dropped you and... Uh, you need to sell some some of this. We've already got it recorded. And it turned out that the reason he didn't want to put it out is uh, the couple of, I think the four tracks that I sing on were recorded at venues where there were much larger audiences than the venues where his tracks were recorded. So he, he listened to this and he heard me getting these thunderous ovations. <laughs> and then he'd do a great song and it'd be a patter of, you know, a scattering of applause. Right, right. So uh, we had this meeting with Peter Diamond, and I, I think he'd back me up on this. Uh, that he said, I don't know, you know, this is good stuff. You know, people would love this. Why doesn't he want to put it out? And then we figured it out. And we went back to the mastering engineer, and we said, can you, like, take the applause off of Vestrax and put them on delays? And uh, so we did that for several of them and, and, and played it again for Paul. He said, you know, this is, this is better than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> the story that I heard, and I don't know if this is true, so tell me if it's not and I'll eliminate it, but there was a point where Paul got into trouble and he had to go somewhere for a few years. Yeah. And the band stayed together, but under a different name. Yeah. And the name of the band was? No Delay. <laughs> I wasn't there then. Oh, you weren't? I, I came in right after that. Oh, okay. Shortly after that. Uh, at that time, uh, Peter led the band, No Delay, and, and a great soul singer named Linda Hornbuckle, also born in Alabama, by the way, who was living out uh, there. She's passed on now, too, but she was a great singer. It, uh, so she would front the band while Paul was in prison. And he wrote a bunch of stuff when he was in prison, and you know he went right into the studio when he came out and oh. uh, had, some, had some tremendous uh, success. I mean, that's, that's when his biggest success came, right, at, right after prison. So it must have been devastating when you lost him. Yeah, yeah. We had actually parted ways uh, shortly before then because, you know, he hadn't, we hadn't had a record out in a number of years, and the audiences were getting smaller, and the gigs were paying less, and he needed to, you know, go from a five-piece down to a four-piece, maybe even a three-piece or whatever. And I was, I had moved to Canada and was going back and forth, so we certainly weren't making enough to justify all the travel I was doing. 
So we said, let's call a timeout. We'll play some music together again. But right now, you know, this is just three or four months before he passed away. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure he ever knew what killed him. Uh, he had a lot of health problems. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, he weighed 450 pounds mm -hmm. and all the stuff that goes with that. But he, he, he had undiagnosed late stage leukemia. Hmm. which I, I think might have been learned by his doctors after he was in his final coma. So I'm not sure he ever knew. Right, because it happened really quick, right? When yeah, it happened really quick. Yeah. So I know that you've been trying to do your solo career, and you had an album out mm -hmm. at, at that time. How, e was it, how easy was it to resurrect your solo career and now that you're now in Canada? It 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 was it was easy easier than I expected, but, but largely because of Paul. Paul had given me a lot of confidence to get out there and be a front man. Um, Let's talk about confidence because it comes up a lot. Tell yeah. me about getting that confidence and you know, or playing without confidence versus realizing you should be playing with confidence. Well, it it I I connected to a bunch of funny stories with Paul. Uh, there was one night where we we played somewhere, and you you know I did. It's a southern thing. If you feel the spirit, you know you jump up and kick around, and and do like like the the first guy I saw do it was the same guy Jerry Lee Lewis saw, uh, a guy named Hovey Lister with the Statesman Quartet. He would jump up and kick the piano bench and shake his hair down on his face and just you know possessed with the Holy Spirit or something on stage. Right. So I was fe really feeling the blues one night, and I kind of, in the middle of the solo, I just stood up and knocked the bench over backwards and was playing. And, uh, and, and I got this big crowd response because it was real and genuine. I mean, if you try to stage that, it doesn't work. It has to, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. It would look silly. It has to surprise you, too. Yeah. Uh, but Paul, uh, he'd sometimes get in a huff about me getting more applause than he did. Uh, sometimes it would be a pretend make-believe huff, and sometimes it'd be real. And that day was real. And he said, well, you know, anybody can jump around the stage like a baboon. You know, I could get a big hand, too, if I, you know, uh, did all that carrying on that you do. Uh, it's got nothing to do with music. And I said, well, yeah, you're probably right. And so that night, we were in Eugene, Oregon. For the first time in years, he played the whole show standing up not sitting on that stool, he was jumping around, and, and I was sitting at the piano just looking down at the keyboard, like never <laughs> even looking up. And so he, he, he threw a solo to me, and I just played it looking down at the keyboard, not looking up, it, totally expressionless, and played it. And at the end of the solo, he got this big <laughs> I mean, it just happened that way, and the band almost died laughing, and Paul is just red in the face. <laughs> <laughs> because he's doing all the stuff he said was easy to get the crowd and, that, and they're ignoring it <laughs> because it's not you know it's, yeah, yeah. It was, but we had a lot of fun like that um, we'd all, all laugh about these things later and uh, he'd make fun of my songs I have one called Shake Tonight in the old time way and he said well, that's about the old people shaking at the <laughs> And he would make those little gestures like people in walkers going for the applesauce while I was singing the song, you know. <laughs> and, 
So tell them about gaining that confidence. Uh, well, it, it, it's just like suddenly finding out you can do something that you, you didn't really know you could do. I mean, why am I going to sing if I've got Tammy Wynette singing in my band, you know? Right. Or Jimmy T99 Nelson, greatest blues shouter since Big Joe Turner. Or, uh, but, you know, Paul seeing me as worthy to, you know, share the front of the stage with him uh, meant a lot to me. But it came that late in your career because yeah. you had played with. Well, I think that's true of a lot of piano players that started out. You look at Pine Top Birkins. I, mm -hmm. When was it, how old was he the first time he fronted a gig? You know, he's yeah. probably 112. <laughs> uh, and uh, I made friends with a guy that was with the original Ink Spots, a guy named Huey Long, guitarist and singer in, in Houston. And he was still working in his 90s, you know, but uh, he, you know, he hadn't done any solo appearances. Uh, long after the ink spots right. you know. um, so you just you know you run up the flag and see if anybody salutes and then when I moved to Canada uh, my wife said well even if you do play up here you know we, we Canadians are reserved they're not like these Americans that you know stand on chairs and throw babies up in the air when you play uh, you know that it's probably gonna you're probably gonna think they don't even like it so I went out in the first place they played. People stood up on chairs, <laughs> and it was like. What was that gig? That was in uh, it was in Victoria, B.C. Okay. Uh, uh, I sat in with uh, with uh, Gary Preston's band. Gary's a, a great piano player and a harmonica player, singer from uh, from Winnipeg, who lives in Victoria now. And then I played some shows with Bill Johnson's band, uh, and he asked me to play on his album that mm -hmm. was Juno nominated. Uh, so how did you how do you approach your musical career, or how did you approach it when you came to Canada, and, and initially not knowing if there if music was still an option for you, but you slowly got back into the scene. Yeah, well, once I uh, once I committed to doing it, I I went back to the same motivation I had when I went in the studio when I was sixteen years old. I'm trying to have a hit. Right. When I recorded with the uh, the Downchild guys for East Meets Vest. Uh, this would be Gary Kendall. Yeah, Mike Gary Kendall, Mike Fitzpatrick, and uh, Teddy Leonard from Fathead right. at the time. Uh, we went to the studio, and, and the, the first thing uh, the guy said is, so you're just here trying to record some songs so you can get gigs, make a CD and get gigs? I said, no, we're trying to make a hit record. And then he said, what kind of record? <laughs> and I said, the kind where you can hear the musicians listening to each other. And he relaxed and smiled and says, I know what you mean. And I think you can, you can, really, you can really hear that. We're all playing at the same time, uh, responding and, re and reacting. That's, that's why I've always done it off the floor because I don't know any other way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if I were to play the piano part first and then go in the vocal booth and sing it, to me, I'd be making a karaoke record. I mean, I know that's silly. No, I, no, that makes I know that, sense. I know that great recordings are made by artists who do it that way. Right. Uh, but, but that's like pretending to have something I felt 10 minutes ago. And I feel like I'm stepping out of the blues if I do that. Right. I also, you know, sometimes feel I'm stepping into the blues when others don't think I am. I had a guy in uh, 
at one show, I think it was in, uh, maybe, maybe it was in Penticton at the Dream Cafe. A guy, we played some, I played Somewhere Over the Rainbow or something, and a guy says, that's not the blues. And I just stopped and I looked at him, I said, by God, if I play it, it is. <laughs> I mean, uh, what have you learned from Canada? What have you learned from moving here and, and getting to know this country? Oh, that I wish I'd, I wish I'd come 30 years earlier. I mean, it's, it's a country where the arts are respected, uh, where the, the music scene is so supportive. The blue societies across Canada are, are so great. And, you know, I certainly, I knew at the start I didn't come up here because these guys needed piano players. Right. I mean, this was the, you had Oscar Peterson when I got here, and you had already had Michael Case Hammer and Lance Anderson, and Kenny Bluesball Swain was up here, and on a cross, and, and you'd had Jane Vasey, for God's sakes, mm -hmm. one of the greats. Uh, I didn't really know about her till I got up here, and someone said, you, well, the first thing you need to listen to was Jane Vasey playing, and I did. Uh, but, it, but in general, there are less piano players out there. You know, you look at the Chicago scene, like there isn't a lot of piano players playing Chicago blues anymore. You know, maybe maybe I don't I don't feel that so much because if you look at the the nominees for the Maple Blues Awards for piano player for the last few years, for at least three years in a row, three of the nominees have been from British Columbia. Mm -hmm. So BC is crawling with piano players. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Casehammer and I collide in airports and. And, and Kenny Wayne and I do, too. Uh, and they're, they're both great guys. Mm -hmm. Amazing people. Uh, and, uh, you know, one of my fondest memories of the Maple Blues Awards was being there the night that Lance Anderson and I were both nominated, and Lance won. And I was the first guy on his feet cheering. I mean, here's a guy that, as he said, 30 years of playing, he'd never had an award for his piano playing. And, and, and this is a guy that Oscar Peterson dug. Mm-hmm. You know, why wouldn't you want to clap for Lance Anderson? Yeah, for sure. And um, and it's just, I've always had this feeling that blues is a community. It began that way. And it's the, the great sign that the social scene that it came from, we mentioned all those sharecroppers and, and the, the poverty and the discrimination and prejudice. It was... Uh, it was the people who had the least that contributed the most mm -hmm. to our society. And, and I, I think that's true in the United States, and I think it's true in Canada. When you look at a guy like Murray Porter and the stuff he's putting down, or a, a First Nations hip-hop artist like Ronnie Dean Harris out in Vancouver, I mean, uh, he has a great song called Be, Med Be a Medicine to Yourself that's just tremendous. Uh, so, so you you know it's you're you're asking for a place at the table in a, in a community that you weren't born into, if you play the blues. Right. And so you approach that community with respect. You don't come in and bang on the table and sit at the head of it. You know, like you're the boss now. But you go to guys like Jimmy T. Ninety Nine Nelson and Miss Lavelle White that I toured with, and you learn from them. Uh, and they, they just, to me, they, they gave me the signal that I should keep doing this. Uh, you talk about confidence. When a, 
when a Jimmy Ford says, you know, I haven't heard anybody play like you in 30 years and I played with Thelonious Monk, you think maybe I'm not so crappy, you know. <laughs> or, or when, when, when Jimmy T99 Nelson likes something that you played, um, when Katie Webster, she ran up to me after a show one time. She, she'd had a stroke and she was in a walker. And she ran across the dance floor with her walker, running with a walker, collided into me and threw her arms around me and whispered in my ear, my name is Katie Webster and I knows it when I hears it. She was amazing. I, and I just thought, you know, Jesus, take me now. It's not going to get any better. <laughs> and... Uh, Someone gave me a picture of, uh, I'm on, we were playing, I was with Paul and uh, Hubert Sumlin was sitting in with us. And I, I played some lick that, that Hubert liked and he, he stopped playing and put his hand over his heart and looked at me. And I thought, uh, you know, I don't know where in life you would get anything that would mean more than that. Mm -hmm. um, What's the greatest lesson you've learned from this journey? Um, that it's not about me. You know, it's, uh, you can overcome stage fright and all sorts of things when you realize that it's not about you. I mean, it's about the music. Mm -hmm. It's about these, these, these people and this, this community. That I had a, a talk with T99 one day at his home on Calumet Street in Houston. And, uh, you know, he was the kind of guy, like, if you presented, like, some other point of view to him, he would, he would take it like that was your point of view. You know, if you said, some people say this, and suddenly it was you that said that. So I said, I read in this magazine here that uh, some people question the validity of, uh, of us white guys playing the blues. What do you think about that? And his eyes lit up with anger, and he, he said, are you telling me our music isn't universal? You know, so it, it's the universality of it that, that um, you know, that this, this great gift to the world that the, whoever invented, you know, like W.C. Handy said, it's, it's ridiculous to call him the father of the blues. I mean, nobody invented the blues. Mm -hmm. That'd be silly. Uh, you know, maybe we should look for the mother. And, and another thing I'll say about Canada is, People, sit, people tell me, uh, well, it's, you know, it must be a big advantage to be born down where the blues was born. I said, yeah, it was born there, but it you know, grew up and moved away. Where's it living now? Mm. Where's it living now? And I think that's, that's the thing we all search for. I, I think it's living well in Canada. For sure. I mean, I think the best blues band in the world is a Canadian band, the Downchild Band. Best one I've ever heard mm -hmm. today. I'm not talking about their history. I think uh, some of the best blues artists on earth. Um, and, and don't get, even get me started about Paul James. I mean, this is a guy that has the energy of Chuck Berry and, and Carl Perkins and, and Jimmy Reed and all those guys. I mean, it's, it's just like being there. Yeah, and he's sure. here right now. Um, Tim Williams has a new album out that's going to knock everybody's socks off. Um, I, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm just really proud to be part of this little scene up we got up here. 
Um, Let me ask you this. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. Yeah. Uh, my final question. You've, you've led a very interesting life. You've, had, you've gone to different places. You've done different things. How do you look back on it all? I, I look back on it as I see myself as somebody who had the great good fortune to find out what he's supposed to be doing and the ability to do it and the opportunity to do it. I mean, it, it, it took me longer to figure it out. It does a lot of people. I resisted it and I ran from it. Um, um, but, you know, even that's not completely true because I was out touring in high school. You know, you know <laughs> we'd get back in town just in time enough for me to get out of the car in the parking lot and run into class with the stage clothes on. So I was, you know, I was, I don't know if that's not a commitment, I don't know what it is. Because <laughs> you risk getting beaten up with that those silly clothes. But it's, it's knowing what you're supposed to be doing and, and having, the, uh, having the, the chance to do it. And Canada's really given me that opportunity in a way that I never, never dreamed possible. I finally got to make a record with my Vancouver Island homies because I'd done three straight in a row over in Toronto. Right. So those, we got a lot of guys that can play really well out there that aren't known back east. Like the bass player on my last album, Ryan Tandy, he, he's just, I think, a revelation to anybody that plays that record. Wow. Uh, Billy Hicks on drums that used to play with Powder Blues. and uh, Of course, you got Powder Blues out there, too. Yes, that's for sure. Vancouver. And Steve Kozak. God, what, you know, he's like a dream guitar player if you, if you want to sound like the blues. Right. And, uh, and you know these connections you find out. I played this show, the last time I played with Steve was at a place called the Patricia Hotel down on Hastings Street in Vancouver, just right on the edge of the really rough part of town. An old hotel, no coffee in the rooms, <laughs> old stage. And I, and I got up there and I played the show with him. And after the show, uh, James Harmon from Alabama was there too. After the show, I found out that Jelly Roll Morton played that room. Wow. I just played on the stage Jelly Roll Morton was on, and I had to come to Canada to do it. <laughs> David, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I for, really appreciate this. For having me. Huh? Uh, this program's probably going to last about a week, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Mark, Mark Twain said it's a terrible death to be talked to death. Thank <laughs> you.